You're listening to the P-Town Church Podcast. To learn more about our in-person services or additional sermon content like this, visit palcc.org. That's P-A-L-C-C dot O-R-G. East, we've been talking about the sanctuary where he serves. The spotless sanctuary that is designed by him, it is sanctioned then, Because he has created it. It's not here on this earth, but it's accessible to us here on earth through our hearts and our minds. And it is where Jesus serves us, and that is where we are spiritualized. That means he puts his word through his laws into our minds, into our hearts. He incarnates us with his word so that we are inclined then to apply everything we do according to his principles and according to his patterns. Then last week we talked about the spotless nature of the sanctuary in that how do we enter in and live with God when we fail, when we are sinners. We learned last week that Jesus is the one who cleanses us, makes us spotless so that we can stand before the Lord. We continue that idea today by talking about how Jesus sterilizes our lives. And we're really going to dig into this more uh, starting next week because our weeks are kind of off for our our pattern. But we'll start um, chapter 10 next week on the 27th and go through the end of September with that focus. And we'll be talking more about the sterilized nature of this. But today I want to introduce that idea because we sometimes forget that the blood is what sterilizes us. And we are, uh, it's hard for us these days because when we think that if we get blood on us, then we are not sterile. If you get someone else's blood on us, on you, if you have a disease or open cut or whatever the case might be, it could be a problem. That's why surgeons wear masks and gloves and, and protect themselves so that if there's blood spatter that it doesn't get into their mouths or eyes or anything like that. So in this day and age, it's hard for us to think in terms of the blood actually sterilizing us. But the idea in Scripture that we find is that through His blood, we are absolved of our sin. It's like Him sterilizing us, sanitizing us. Now, we're all familiar with that, right? I just sterilized and sanitized my hands before it came up. I don't know why. I was just getting ready to take communion, and I thought, well, I better get my hands. It's just by nature we do that anymore. We want to scrub or get rid of anything we can't see in our lives that might make us sick or make others sick. Today we want to talk about this idea in our covenanting with God, covenanting with God, in that He empowers and and enables us in our covenanting with Him. The reason this is important if you are history buff like I am when it comes to the church is that it seemed insignificant at the time when a priest by the name of Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on a door I said theses by the way (laughs) on a door those are statements of belief 
He posted those on a door at Wittenberg University in 1517. Some might say so. Well, what he did was, he didn't realize it at the time, but he was sparking what would become what is known as the Protestant movement. So here in America, it's been one of those classifications. You're either Catholic or you're Protestant. When they, you say you're Catholic, you don't say, oh, well, what denomination of Catholicism do you belong to? If you're in the Catholic Church, you're Catholic, right? If you're Protestant, then they'll ask you, oh, well, what denomination do you belong to? Are you Baptist, Methodist, uh, Episcopalian, and, uh, or um, Church Christ? We're part of the restoration movement that's non-denominational, or we don't want to be known in a non-denominational. We'll get more into that in a second. But in the Protestant movement, there's a lot of different denominations. But how it all started was when Martin Luther, he nailed his 95 theses on the door at Wittenberg University in 1517. One of the things to which he objected was the teaching and selling of indulgences to the people. The granting of indulgences was predicated on two beliefs in the church at that time. First, in the sacrament of penance, it did not suffice to have the guilt of sin forgiven through absolution alone. One also needed to undergo temporal punishment or penance as it was defined because one had offended the Almighty God. This teaching of indulgences suggested that the absolution that Jesus provided in his blood that sterilizes our lives so that we can stand before God was insufficient. That in, a, in addition to having this absolution, we needed to suffer here on this earth. That we needed to do self-penance or self-punishment. And at the particular time, the church offered ways monetary ways that you could self-punish or be penitent. The second basis of this idea of indulgences was belief in purgatory because you could help buy your dad or mom or grandma and grandpa, you could help buy them out of, uh, of uh, purgatory where they were waiting didn't know whether or not they were going to heaven or hell, they're in purgatory. So just to make sure, you could offer a gift to the priest, uh, and he would pray for that person in purgatory that they would be secure in going to heaven. Now, though neither of these is part of our teaching in the Restoration Movement, it seems like the human side of our Christian nature must figure out a way that we can feel the pain related to our sin because it is hard for us to believe that God is so great and Jesus is so wonderful that in the new covenant there is a process of absolution in which God, through Christ, His blood, He wipes away our sins and He remembers them no more. 
our deep dive into Hebrews 9 verses 15 through 28 is so very important because there exists only one lasting sacrifice based upon the one lasting servant which serves to permanently settle the sin problem. God had this problem with sin. He sent His Son who died on the cross, who shed His blood. We participated in a remembrance of that with Jack's help here this morning. You did a great job, Jack. It was so helpful to me because of some things I've been struggling with this week. How His blood can wash away our sins, and the purpose of it is to make us feel positive or hopeful, not feel the pain. If he wanted us to feel the pain, he'd just say, deal with it yourself. But Jesus took the pain and the punishment upon his shoulders, and he bore that on the cross so that he could absolve us of our sin. Jesus' blood protection empowers this blood absolution for those who eagerly are awaiting Him. And daily we are motivated to covenanting because we are empowered by blessed absolution, by resting in God's blood protection. There's this process that we're living in that God has instituted that is part of living in His sanctuary so that when we're struggling with sin, when we're worried about what it's doing in our life, we don't look at it from the pain, but we look at it from the possibility of what God can do with that. His process is to forgive us, to atone for that sin, to absolve us of our sin and what we deserve because of that sin. And we talked about this last week, I think, that the wages of sin are what? Death, right? So if we die without having the blood of Christ covering us, then we will have to pay the wage of our sin, which is eternal death. But even good people, just as we illustrated with the church, why Luther protested against Catholicism and the idea of indulgence is because it was propagating this idea that God, through Christ, could not absolve our sins completely, that we needed to punish ourselves or let someone else tell us what we needed to do for penance in order to please God. That's why when we read these words from Hebrews, it's so very important and empowering. It enables us and empowers us to covenant with God with such great confidence. So let's start with verse uh, 9 here of Hebrew, or verse 15 of Hebrews 9. And again, I know it's a lengthy set, but it'll all come together. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living." 
This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll and all the people. And he said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, and here's the important point, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and, are you listening or reading, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There's no absolution. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But... He has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. There's a lot of theology that is found in these verses, but I want us to focus on the two main components here. And that is, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. The Old Testament covenant had the tabernacle and its ceremonies and the people, they were all sprinkled with blood. That was to demonstrate, as we talked about last week, to demonstrate what was to come in the heavenlies when Christ died on the cross and he purifies everything through his blood. And he did it once for all to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, do you think God would lie to us? Do you think God's lying to you when he says, I'm taking away your sin? But I want you to live in the punishment of it. Now, I'm not naive. I know human nature is that we can find forgiveness, but we may have to deal with the residual uh, things involving the, the sin we've lived in for years. God wipes away the sin and the punishment that might be involved with it but he can't wipe away our history or past or what we did to get there. We have to live with the consequences of the decisions that we make, but we should not make them or we should not have to live with them punishing ourselves continually, but to live in the promise of God as we await for him to completely fix it all. That's why covenanting, we covenant with God. We're covenanting with Him because Jesus' blood protection, it empowers us. 
empowers blood absolution in us. The blood covenant that empowers us in the sterilized sanctuary is purified by the very best sacrifice so we can appear in God's presence. He washed these things with something that was even better than what was in the Old Testament. Now the problem is we're always attempting through self-punishment or self-penance to pay for our sins that have already been forgiven us. Why do we do that? It's because we fall into the trap that those in Catholicism did back in the early days when they sold indulgences. Now, since then, they've outlawed that, that to some extent. There are some things that they do that might get around with that. But if some man tells you, listen, I'm glad that God has forgiven you, but here's some things you need to do to pay for it. You just need to laugh at that. Because it's Jesus' blood protection that empowers blood absolution. He wipes it away. He does away with that. He pays for our sin so that we don't have to. The new covenant stipulates that Jesus entered heaven itself and he appears in God's presence with the best sacrifice of himself to absolve us of our sin. And Luther's break with the Catholic Church, fueled by the ability of common people to finally be able to read the Bible for themselves, they began to find many of the teachings of the church to be unsupported by the New Testament Scripture. And it set a fire across Europe which demanded reformation. So the reformation movement brought about the Protestant movement, or the Protestant movement brought about, about Reformation. And at the heart of the Reformation was this key question of absolution. Does Jesus appear before God in the sterilized sanctuary to forgive us of our sins? Or do trained men like priests specifically tell us how to be forgiven? Hebrews 8 verses 1 and then verse 6 reminded us as we studied it a few weeks ago. Now the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Verse 6, but in fact the ministry, of Jesus, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant established, is established on better promises. Jesus is set down at the right hand. He serves us in the sanctuary. It is this tabernacle that we've been talking about, not made by, by human hands, but by God himself. It is superior because it takes away our sins. It is based upon better promises of the new covenant. When we are living in the blood of Christ, protected by the power, 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 His wonder-working power, it empowers our blood absolution. It helps us realize that we have been forgiven for promise not to be punished. 
when you partake of your communion and you ask the Lord, Lord, forgive me, what should be on your heart and mind is not how do I compensate for what I've done that was a sin. Your idea has to be what can I promise and what promise can I live in where I can overcome this because it's torturing me. That brings us to the second part here about covenanting. Covenanting, we covenant with God because Jesus' blessed absolution enables his blessed protection. The blessed absolution that enables our blessed protection in the sterilized sanctuary is made possible because Jesus did away with sin so we could wait for him to bring fuller salvation. Now, we seem to allow our sin to continue to control our perspective and our passions because we forget that it has been done away with in the case of those who believe in Christ and have confessed, repented, been baptized of their sins. And when Jesus returns, he will take this body of death that Paul described in, he, in Romans and he will help us to rise up into immortality. To give us a new body, a new existence where we won't be bound by the flesh, the nature, and its sin. We will be completely free of it. But until then, we have to think about the absolution that is ours and let it protect us as we fight daily against our inclinations, our perspectives, and our passions. Now, why are those important? Because... When you allow other people or the world or your entertainment or your politics or your um, desire for wealth or money, when you allow that to determine your perspective and your passions, what drive you in life, they then control what you feel, how you think, whether or not you can, can, can you think you're a success or not. So if I go online and uh, I follow all the greatest preachers in America who have uh, congregants of tens of thousands, and I listen to them every Sunday, and I begin to think about my, from their perspective, what's going on with what's going on in our own particular situation in church. I may become depressed and discouraged, but that's foolish. The Bible teaches us not to compare ourselves with others that way. We have to protect our perspective and our passions, and we do that by allowing the absolution of Christ Jesus to wash over us and protect us in our life. Luther's famous observation on Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which he concluded, we must live by faith alone by believing in the absolution of God and that we are protected by that blessing. And because he offered that perspective, it changed the passion of uh, millions of believers and it enabled them to recommit themselves to Jesus Christ on a personal level, so much so that we look back upon what developed out of that called the Victorian era, we look back upon that and say, well, how they just were so tightly wound. They were so good about everything. How could they live that way? The new covenant stipulates 
that we will all die and after that face judgment. So Christ takes away the sins of the believer and will bring salvation to them at the second coming. Our response to this is grace. And it cannot be indulgence or indifference. When God shows us this grace, we live in that grace which encourages us to want to do better for Him. He made a better sacrifice. He made better promises. He offered a better covenant. So we live a better life for Him. And it's not to indulge in whatever or be indifferent. Think, well, God doesn't care that I'm sinning. For Pete's sake, the reason that He came and tried to Forgive us of our sin is because sin destroys us. It eats away at us every day, not just us personally, but when we're involved in it corporately in the world, it eats away at our culture, the stability of it, and it eats away at our country and the stability of it. That's why we need to respond to God's grace with faithfulness and obedience and uh, as we talk about this more as we get into chapter 10, doing the will of God, just doing God's will can help us receive His grace fully and help us overcome the indulgence and indifference that sometimes describes our lives. Because Hebrews 10, verse 26 through 31 warns us, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and who has treated as unho an, an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified, that sanctified them? And who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. We know there is a day of judgment that's coming. The Bible teaches us that we can judge ourselves right now according to God's word. We can seek forgiveness. We can believe it. We can repent of our sins. We can confess that we need Jesus Christ as our Savior. We can do something like baptism where we wash away our sins and we commit to the world that we're going to live for Him through the power of the Holy Spirit who is gifted to us through that process. And then we live every day seeking to honor God through His promise. Otherwise, it'll be a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And as we talked about before, ignorance is not going to help. Saying that I didn't know, or being indifferent, or saying this isn't fair. The reason God forgives us through His Son, Jesus Christ, is so that we can have promise in our life, not punishment. And for this reason, as Hebrews 9 concludes there, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the, or I'm sorry, that's the first part of that um, verse 
9, or verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. This whole process is so that what God has promised to us, we will realize it. We'll fully receive it. We'll receive what we can now, and then we'll receive it fully when Jesus Christ returns. We have been called by God to receive this hope found in the new covenant, which we practice in the sanctioned, spiritual, spotless, sterilized sanctuary in heaven. And Paul gives us encouragement in how and what to do while we wait patiently in Romans chapter 8, verse 24 through 32, which says, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is, not, that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works through the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. For those God, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, and those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That's absolution. That's when God comes and absolves us of our sin because of the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. It sterilizes our lives. We are made clean and holy. Now, it would take about 300 more years before those in the restoration movement that we are a part of broke completely free from the denominationalism which displaced Catholicism by means of Protestantism. Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone led a group of like-minded Christians to state such things as, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. Do Bible things in Bible ways, call Bible things by Bible names. And where the scripture speaks, we speak, and where the scripture is silent, we are silent. In matters of faith, unity. In matters of opinion, liberty. In all things, love. Truth first, union afterward, and union only in truth. The response of our founding fathers of the restoration movement of which we are part didn't want to be a part of a denomination again. What they wanted to do was be called New Testament Christians where we skip all the man-made rules and regulations that have developed over years and just follow the Scripture. And this is very important in this day and age because the harassment and humiliation we endure as Christians, sometimes from ourselves, sometimes from those in this world, but especially against the devil himself regarding our sin, 
We can address this when we live daily in the sanctuary where Jesus has absolved us of our sin without any strings. And the only way we know that it is if we kind of just put a cover over all the words that were part of uh, Christian history from about 500 A.D. Uh, till about mid-1500 when Luther protested. So that we can see right back to what the Scripture teaches. Because the Scripture teaches us that Jesus absolves us of our sin and we'll continue to learn that God takes that sin and He puts it where He remembers it no more. So why do we? Jesus deals with the punishment of our sin. He did so at the cross so that we could live in the absolution of his sacrifice. And it is our privilege to take this message of absolution to all those we, all those we know so that they can find the help, hope, and healing which will protect their lives because we've fallen into this trap where we are condemning ourselves, we're allowing other people to condemn us, and it's all part of the devil's big trick so that we're always constantly at, e at each other's throats. And I may not be able to convince the person who is yelling at me and screaming at me and saying that I'm, I've done them wrong. But I can find forgiveness and absolution of my sin in Christ Jesus. And then do everything I can to demonstrate obedience to Him towards those people who are around me. The sterilized sanctuary is important for us to live in because from a psychological point of view, it protects us and helps us to see things as we should. It's the only way to overcome this world because it's faith in Jesus that's that victory. And as we were singing that last song about overcoming the mountains, and as Seth was praying for us, Encouraging you to understand that there's not a mountain that God can't help us overcome. Right here in our situation and what we're doing even. It's because Jesus Christ absolved us of our sin so that we can live in promise. Not in constant punishment of ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful today for the opportunity to dig into Hebrews 9, 15 through 28. There are a lot of things that you teach here, but I hope today that you have used me to accurately present your truth to the people that are here. And to those who might hear this online later, those who might be at the fair today taking care of uh, showing their things or being involved in the activities that are important to this county, I pray your blessing upon them. But as they hear this message, I pray you bless them too with this truth. There's so many people around us who want us to feel condemned. They want us to condemn ourselves. They're always the first to offer reasons why we're not good, why we failed, why we're ugly or incapable to them. Help us to respond to that trick of Satan 
by remembering that our sin ultimately is against you and that if we've repented and confessed our sin and we believe in the power of Christ Jesus' forgiveness in his blood and we've been baptized to wash away that sin, that we don't have to worry about what other people say. We just have to live in the promise that you teach us we can live in until Jesus Christ returns and puts everything in order. And I'm thankful, Lord, that it's just not that idea where they're going to get theirs. Not that, Lord, but that we'll live in such promise of you that we'll be able to set the example through our words and our actions to those who are around us of what it looks like to find forgiveness, to live in forgiveness, to offer forgiveness instead of judgment. Lord, I pray for everyone who's here today and all those who might hear this message that if their burden was some kind of sin that's been bothering them for years or maybe even longer. And they just feel like they have to punish themselves because they can't believe that the blood of your son Jesus can absolve them. I pray that today they'll learn that your blood is so powerful that it enables us and empowers us to overcome. And if we have to take some time here to confess that sin to you, we'll do so. To admit that we are trying to beat it on our own instead of trusting in the forgiveness and promise of absolution. And Father, I know we live in a world that it's ugly right now. And there's a lot of people that are laying charges and accusations against others who are imperfect themselves. Help us to see all this is the strategy of Satan to keep us divided. And then remember the only thing that can bring us together is when we lift up Christ on the cross. And people see that he is the one who forgives. That I'm a sinner, that they're a sinner, and Christ Jesus is the one who forgives us because his Father loves us so much that he gave him for that purpose. Help us to experience that in our own little community as we think about people in our own life who need Christ, who need forgiveness, who need to overcome, who are punishing themselves or trying to live in penance or indulging themselves in passions and godly or ungodly worldly perspectives. Help us to reach out to them with your truth and your word this week. We love you, Father, and thank you for this opportunity to deep dive. May we find the treasures you've had waiting for us. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And let all God's people say,